In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. Got a great show for you today. For those who may not be aware, we are here with the one and only Simon Vanderold, a microbiologist, a transition guide, and quite possibly the coolest new word out there is the Gyanthropocene Wanderer. Simon, I'm so stoked you're here today. Um, the posts you've been putting out lately have been really phenomenal. I really admire the way you think, you, you think, and I think you got a unique idea of, of what's happening around us in the environment. And I'm excited to talk to you about it today. How's it going? Thanks, George, for having me on. It's fun to be back. And uh, well, also thanks for the compliments on, uh, on the type of posts I write. I'm also enjoying writing them and uh, thinking about them. And uh, I'm doing good today. It's a nice, uh, nice sunny, uh, sunny day. Most of March has been uh, quite rainy here in the Netherlands. And uh, now, now that we're in April, it's beginning to get a little bit warmer and more spring. So it's nice to go out. Yeah. Eight, what is it about April? You have Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. You have T.S. Eliot. And now you got Simon Vanderell's. What What's going on over here in April? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Ah, what? Let me let me ask you this. So we talk about April being spring, but some of your posts and some topics that you and I have been talking a little bit about is this idea of rewilding. Can you break that down? Like, what does it mean to you? And what would be a good definition for people to get their arms around? Very good question. Um, so I recently used rewilding uh, to talk about specifically the rewilding of the interior, so of the of the psyche of the mind. Um, but rewilding is mostly used, I guess, in ecological uh, ecological terms and ecological maintenance or restoration of ecosystems. And I think the main, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that the main premise of rewilding is to use or to let nature, let's say, do the work on uh, restoring an ecosystem. So, for instance, uh, allowing rivers to flow more 
freely, more naturally, so get rid of dams or human-made uh, barriers. Introduce, reintroducing beavers, for instance, they also change the ecosystem a lot. And reintroduction of large um, predators, for instance, or sort of sort of uh, animals that operate on the top level of the trophic system. So uh, whales or wolves or these kind of things. Um, yeah, and to let nature do the work as, as it's like, okay, life, uh, as, as arbitrary as it sounds, life actually wants to live and does the living. So it's sort of getting our, getting our hands a little bit off it, just putting the right things together and maybe minimal maintenance, but then just letting, uh, letting it go ahead. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. And I, I think the two of those are really connected. You know, when we look at when we look at the world around us, that's tied up with fences and tied up with you know no trespassing signs and barbed wire. It's it's almost like we have tried to put on our own sort of world on top of the world, and like it, it's and it seems as if we're going further on. And maybe this is maybe you can draw a parallel to the inward side or, or what what's happening on the inside of our thought process, but yeah. it, it just seems like it's it's failing and, and this rewilding idea of, Hey, let's get back to nature. Let's let nature do the work. It, there yes. seems a real parallel between what's going on on our minds and what's happening out in the world. Like, would you agree yeah. with that? For sure. I completely agree <laughs> with that. So well put, I think it's the, 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 um, the ideas, the world is within the world is without. Um, and I think previously we talked a bit on uh, Ian McGilchrist's yeah. work on the left hand right hemisphere uh, and his study on that. Um, I think the 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 way that we organize the world. So, for instance, a city is already a virtual uh, virtual reality in a sort of sense. Is it's it's a, let's say thought made manifest. So, mm -hmm. uh, how we construct our buildings is not a naturally occurring um, way it's not like erosion and wind will at some point construct a house it's a it's a construct that we we build mm -hmm. so it's something that's present in our mind and through our hands and our capabilities we place it um, and the dangers there and this is of course this is also our unique not, not fully unique talent because birds also make nests and beavers make dams and stuff but it's our um i would say that is our main strength as a species that we we are capable of of sort of reiterating on thought and constructing all these complex um you know we say complex constructions and then manifesting them in the physical uh physical world um the problem there is and that's where the anthropocene term comes <laughs> from is that we uh, change the world fit to our model, and that's our left hemispherical model, which is a sort of representing of the present. So we we uh, create pictures, so to say, or snapshots, or, or yeah, thought constructs of reality. We link them in our brain, and we link them to our myths and all our other structures and language and stuff, and then we impose it on the territory. So it's the danger that we walk into is, is that we uh, change the territory for the map that we have in our heads uh, instead of updating the map 
for the territory. And the Anthropocene is so the human-shaped world. And that's what the term means, I guess. Um, yeah, and this is also, of course, it's very much a problem that starts in here, starts yeah. in with the interior, and then manifests in, in the outside world. Uh, and in the interior, I think it manifests due to, or in a way, how you say, um, that we might get stuck a lot in uh, our concepts of the world and also our concepts that are that we culturally inherit, for instance, mm -hmm. when we grow up. So maybe cultural concepts on what it means to be a human or what it means to coexist with other people, uh, how to collaborate, how to just add. the way of being in the world is then most informed by these maps that we have. And these maps, so these cognitive maps, might not be uh, up to snuff or up to speed or fitting reality anymore, or they never fit reality quite well. And I guess rewilding how I meant it is pointing towards that part, is to see can we let go of our maps somewhat? We need maps. It's our, this is how our brain works, I guess. Mm -hmm. So we, we need a a view or goggles to see reality. Uh, we construct reality in that sense. There is a real, I believe that there is a physical reality outside of our only our cognition, but we need our cognition to make sense of that. But I would, what I would point towards is that we might want some rewilding as to have this map be organically updated towards whatever the physical real outside of us is doing and what we are doing to it and how it's changing. Yeah, I, I love that idea of the idea of maps. And, you know, it seems to me like if you go back and you look at these old maps, whether it's like the Piri Res map or these my some of my favorite maps, like the ones from the Middle Ages, where they have like a giant octopus in the middle of the ocean, or like a giant sea creature, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like I, I think of those as our mental models today. Like if you if you can if if you're just listening to this, like just imagine one of those old like kind of black and white maps. It's almost a sepia tone, and it has like a giant octopus, and it's you know just catering catering over a ship or something like that. And that is a lot of what we're teaching at school. Like instructors today are giving people maps of old sea monsters that may or may not exist anymore. And it, there's other routes around that. And there's different things. There's different models. And while I agree that we definitely need models to move forward, I don't think we've updated a lot of those models in a long time. And it's really beginning to show in mental illness or mental wellness, um, in, in, in um, the economy, in the way we treat each other and everywhere yeah. it's all around us like we're, we're just working off bad maps imagine if you had a bad map and you're trying to find your way down a trail well, you're not going to be yeah. able to get there because you don't have the right map and that means you have to do some investigating and i think it's it's a very rich environment we find ourselves in because there's time to explore there's time to recreate models to take an old map dust it off and maybe create a new trail on there and that's a lot mm. like neuroplasticity when we start thinking about it like that yeah we, yeah right for sure yeah 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 i like that yeah yeah i think the the uh the um i think mcgilchrist uses this uh, uh analogy or this this um 
uses a, a metaphor to explain the the difference between the two hemispheres. And of course, this is his books are massive, as you know. Yeah. So for the <laughs> listeners, just read the books and don't don't take my word on it. But um, he says that uh, let's say you're you're a boat boat captain or uh, yeah you're a captain on a boat and you have to navigate a reef and you have two ways of doing it. You have to you can do it by looking out from behind the steering wheel and trying to navigate that way, or you can use a map that was previously made of the reef. But if you would have to pick which one you would use, uh, if you can only use one, which one would you use as you are navigating through it? Now, for me, the answer is obvious. But... Yeah. I... I don't know. I, it depends on who owned the boat, but I would probably just look over the steering wheel. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> now, but I like the analogy that you make also with the <coughs> here be dragons and octopuses yeah. and stuff. Right. That's that's the 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 I would say um, as myth. <coughs> Sorry, <laughs> I coughed a little. As myth makes up our um, reality or are the, the foundations of our sort of collaborative stories that, well, we build society around. Mm -hmm. If there's faults in the foundation or uh, if you, if in the blueprint of how you build up ideas, then those will, of course, echo through. And if, if a civilization has a very long arc uh, or a long arc in time as to build on these myths, then of course you're going to end up in the end with a with a whole lot of cracks in the foundation in the end, or if it's used in all the stories that are built on it. And I, yeah, I guess on an economical level, there's a there's of course the myth of progress and sure, uh, yeah, these large things. Yeah, yeah, it. it on some level, when I think of myth, I think of the idea and the something that seems to be in all history books or what seems to be in all cultures is this idea of storytelling and this idea of being able to relate history through stories. And we come to myth that way. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me to see how many like archetypes are there and it seems like every culture has like the wounded healer or every culture has the underdog, you know, but there's so many of these exploration myths that, that, that move through different cultures. It's, it's like our personal story right there. And when I think of rewilding, not only nature, but remodeling the maps in our mind, I think that there's no better way to do that than to return to the classic stories of what humanity is about. And I, I see that with, with the ideas of McGillcrest. And I see that with the ideas of a narrative in play, you know, whether it's look at the way in which today's media tries to control the narrative. Like they're desperately trying to control the mm -hmm. story so that yeah. they can get everyone out there to see the same thoughts, to be on the yeah. same page. Even if it's a silly map, they're like, look at the silly map. This is it. You know, and they're trying mm -hmm. to sell you this idea because they they know that everyone has to ha have have skin in the game on some level, right? Is that the yeah. idea with with controlling the narrative and maps and and changing reality and maybe why it's not working so well today? Yeah, yeah, 
most likely. I um, let's see. Um, what I think is that we're in a in a, um, a very in, we're living in a very interesting time, in a unique moment. Uh, yeah. As the, I think that this this is also what postmodernism, of course, alludes to. Is, is, uh, so you have, mo you have modernity, or we went into modernity. I'm a sort of amateur philosopher. I try to read up on these things. So again, this is my understanding of it. And we had the myths of, or we had the coherent stories of modernity. The myth of progress was a very strong part of this. And the myth of progress was underpinning both the sort of Western development in the Western economies, uh, but also in the sort of the Soviet the Soviet stories or the, the communist stories. It's also the idea of um, man-made paradise through technology. That is, that's like a very short descriptor of the myth of progress. Mm -hmm. Um, and because society and how information um, uh, was um, propagated through society was fairly top-down or fairly um, centralized. So with the, with the invention of the printing press, uh, it's also said that that was the invention of ideology because you had a mass-produce, reproducible, um, uh, or you have mass production of a singular idea which can be spread very quickly throughout a population and then people can uh, adhere to this idea and then you get they say like ideology as an as a sort of as we use the map metaphor ideology is a map to watch reality through so it's a set of goggles that you then you can code information from reality and it allows people to quickly adhere or quickly uh, see the world in a similar way and which is a way of of course moving populations and getting great great works done either very terrible works or yeah actual great works but great in that sense You're right and of course religion previously uh, like world religions were also capable of doing this but the, i think there's a very similar uh, structure in these kind of uh, ideas um and then with post in a postmodern society, I think that's most likely due to uh, information uh, overload. So uh, with the TV, radio, uh, mostly TV, I guess, as a natural sort of follow up on uh, radio telegrams. Uh, now with the Internet, of course, the amount of information that is uh, slung about our information ecosystem is like it, it, it's so overpopulated. There's never been this dense before. Mm -hmm. um, also, the speed of it. And the idea of postmodernism, as I understand it, is, is that uh, you can have a society where you can sit on a bus with 15 different people and they have 15 different sets of glasses on uh, for maps of seeing reality. Because there are uh, the the let's say the information channels that we have allow this kind of propagation of mini ideologies, let's say, or big ideologies, depending on how much mass they acquire, how many people carry them around. And what is now happening to our central structures as the big ideolo ideological stories are failing. So the nation state or mm -hmm. monarchy, or even now, uh, 
economical uh, ideologies, so, so, such as capitalism, right. as, a, as a sort of main idea of like capitalism is come and deliver. Well, we saw the fall of the Soviet Union. So that, that main ideology also collapsed. Now there's a lot of sort of competing organisms. I like to think of, of, uh, of ideas, ideologies, religions, that these are actual organisms. I like that. Yeah. So there's a lot of competing organisms for a large organism, which is uh, sort of the previous idea of the, I would say, the state or the sort of central central governance. Uh, you maybe can picture it like a very large tree in a forest, and you have all these smaller organisms or these smaller ideologies, which are like um, uh, other types of trees or maybe even fungi that are growing on the tree and decomposing it. Yeah. And this large tree is trying to put all its effort in in surviving, but it's already dying. Hmm. And in that sense, it will try to send out a very clear message on a no this is actually actually reality so there's a competition between ideologies and the amount of people that are getting let's say colonized by ideologies different ways of seeing and there's a competition for who gains the most mass and the legacy systems such as state governments or larger uh, organizations of course they have a lot of skin in the game uh, and they control still a lot of the wealth and also uh, the system. So they, they will try to stay alive. There's hardly any animal that dies gracefully. You know, <laughs> humans also don't dry, die gracefully. Yeah. That's, I like that. I, it's a really well said. And I like the concept of thinking about ideas as organisms because they are they're fighting for their life they're fighting for oxygen and they want to continue to colonize and in some ways you know you can look at your life like an idea like what is the idea of your life what are your goals what is it that you're accomplishing and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting concept to think about because yeah. it gives you a way to see yourself as the observer instead of just being a subject or an object. And there's like, there's like a small moment of clarity one can find in between decision and action. You know what I mean by yeah. that? Like there, there, there's a moment there where you have this weird influence where you can either go this way or go that way, or you have a, just yeah. a split moment to think about things. And when you find yeah. that time, I think you can change your life. And I, I do think that that is part of the rewilding or the reimagining of your life, right? Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, and I think we, we so it's clear we both have experience also with uh, psychedelic compounds. Yes, yes. I also practice meditation. Um, these, these kind of experiences and meditation and sort of this, this uh, development of consciousness allows yeah. you to put a little bit of a space between uh, the thought and the observer or the yes, thought and the action. Yes, yes. And the moment you can separate those is that helps because then you can also start seeing indeed your interior as an ecosystem because already looking at yourself. So, so the, the human body, it is an ecosystem. I'm a sort of swarm, uh, a multicellular organism is already a composite of all these different types of cells. They share a genetic code, but in structure, they're completely different. 
So it's a I am a collaboration of mm. organisms, and the aggregate of that thinks it is Simon mm -hmm. for some reason. <laughs> also, I, I carry in my GI tract, I carry about the same amount or up to 10 times the amount. These calculations are a bit iffy, but uh, this is roughly the figure. So the same amount or up to 10 times the amount of microorganisms. So what, what am I? <laughs> I'm a walking aggregate of different cells collaborating with also different organisms collaborating inside my GI tract and providing me with uh, different chemicals and uh, doing decomposition for my food and I feed them as well. If you look at that, that's, that's just a physical reality of my body. If you then, if you then translate the, that to our psyche, why isn't the, uh, the substance of our psyches or our interior isn't that also the case? Isn't that also a composite of all these different types of presences? So even, uh, so even in, the, in, in our cells, we have retroviruses that are, uh, that are inserted in there and that, that are part of us already for millions of years. Uh, we have transposons, which are uh, small pieces of mobile genetic elements that can jump around in genomes. You can also picture these as organisms. So playing around with this, then this metaphor of rewilding the interior, you mm -hmm. become more of and adding this little bit of distance from whatever thought you might have and whatever action you might want to do. If you can then start observing them more, you become more of a sort of gardener or a um, um, wildlife documentarist or something. <laughs> and and you have access to playing around with it a bit mm -hmm. so you can you can say like no i want to feed the wolves a bit more mm -hmm. or ah, we had, we do have a little bit too many buffalo now in the system can i observe the buffalo and see what they need so mm. we can get something else in that space can we let the river go a bit free more free uh, and using these kind of metaphors you can start playing around with the interior of like okay what are the fences that i have in my in my head what are the what are the places where I feel a lot of friction? Maybe there's a lot of barbed wire on that fence. Maybe you can bring some bolt cutters and get rid of that. Or maybe <laughs> I can infuse some, uh, I don't know, maybe infuse some some uh, like vines, let some, some wild plants grow over them, so overgrow them. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like this kind of playful thinking, and it's also a way of re- if we're talking symbols and language and yeah. these things, it's a more playful way of um, talking with yourself in a way. Uh, it, and, and it's re-symbolizing certain thoughts, giving them a name helps. And then finding ways of, okay, what does this, what does this organism need? And not fight it. So not fight like, okay, I really don't like this part of me or these thoughts and this is not nice and yada, yada. Yeah, you can start bringing napalm in, in or start hunting them. But I guess we both know that that hardly ever works. It's right. the same with like, if you have a, a challenging psychedelic experience, yeah, it's something that you have to go through instead of you cannot fight these things. And then well, you can take a little bit of wisdom and see if you can get a healthy ecosystem going. And through there, uh, yeah, you're most likely your uh, general experience of life will be a bit healthier. 
Yeah, I love it. It's really well said. It's it's fun to get to see the emissary begin to fail. The master has known all along, <laughs> you know, and it's it's yeah. You know, it, there's another um as as great as as that book is, and and as as forward thinking as Ian McGilchrist is, I, there was another. Um, I was reading this other book. I should I'll send you the 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 title of it. I think it's called Alter States of Consciousness. And um, it's a book from the 70s. And it's all these different scientists talking about the way in which we think. And one of them had brought up this point that it's so strange that here in the West, we have decided that verbal acuity and linguistics seems to be a higher order of thinking than mental imagery. And, and why should that be? And what you just described about whether it's the woods growing over the fences or whether it is feeding the wolves or whether it is, you know, feeding the bear that becomes you like, you know, whatever it image it is. Like, I really think that that is something that is changing the world. Like your thoughts become you and the better you can imagine them in a physical form or a story yeah. form or a mythological form, the faster yeah. you can make change in your life because the images are, a, in my opinion, I think that the, the world of, mental imagery is vastly superior to linguistics because it shows you what yes. you want to do or what is possible. And linguistics yeah. has a tough time catching up with that. Like it's really yeah. good. The scalpel's beautiful, but it's that mental imagery that shows you connections. It's that mental imagery that can really help you become what you want to be. And I, I want to share a quick example of, of something that happened in my life. You know, for a long time, I found myself, and this is after a few years of doing some real deep work with psychedelics and meditation. I came to this understanding that what I didn't like about myself was that I didn't have a lot of courage. I kind of felt like the scarecrow in in, uh, in whatever that the movie wizard was. Of Oz. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I wore this exterior shell, like I was I was mean sometimes, or I would do these things. But the more that I began to think about courage the more i began to think about how to do it the more i started acting out the more i started seeing myself as someone oh if i want to be someone that has courage then i should try to show people other people how to have courage instead of pointing out that they don't have courage that's an opportunity for me to show someone that that they can have courage and it becomes mm. with that mental imagery whether it's the scarecrow or whether it's putting up a shield whatever it is it's a yeah. way in which in your life you can begin to do these things if you have the right imagery combined with the linguistics. I know that was kind of out there, but what's your take on no, that? No, 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 no. What do you think? Oh, I like it. I like it. Thank you. Uh, and and uh, what immediately popped to mind uh, where you went into that um, uh, analogy, uh, a big part of my process uh, in coming to these things or coming more to, to myself or this ecology yeah. of self I like it. is is distrusting um, of putting less trust in voiced thought. So whenever the mind is babbling, so it's right. using actual words and actual sentences, it's most likely the left hemisphere talking to you. And the left hemisphere is the map maker, is the one that puts up the fences. Very useful, but have it talk on itself is hard. Usually it doesn't bring anything useful for if it's just babbling and i kind of have the feeling that this goes for or this is might be a universal 
that if you start babbling to yourself, usually it doesn't go anywhere useful. And I, I remember that uh, David Bohm in one of his books on nature of reality and on thought, he made like a very simple diagram in which he said like, on the one, on the one part you have um, the, the physical world, so it's non-thought, so anything that's not yet captured by thought, and then you have thought, and uh, what we're doing is an active buffering between the two. So we're constantly uh, filtering the uh, our, our uh, percepts into concepts and mm -hmm. basing our actions on it. And what he says that if you're if you're too much in the in the internal monologue, then you have the chance that instead of non thought being transcribed to thought, you have thought being transcribed to thought. So there's mm -hmm. a the brain might see a thought for non thought. And if you have an error somewhere in your thought, the brain just passes over it and incorporates it for the next one and for the next one and for the next one. So you get all these chains of associations yeah. which might go, yep. which might have a error in them. So I, I would notice this at a certain point. Uh, so I was in the process of sort of moving out of depression, for instance, right. uh, and it took me a while. And I just started paying more attention to these kind of things. And then at a certain point, I figured out, like, look, I've been stuck in a loop for like yeah. two days. And I'm not just not going to pay that much attention anymore to this, well, whatever is going on here, because it's not giving me anything. And what I had to think about what you just mentioned is, again, with the analogy of uh, are you uh, the, the boat captain looking with his eyes or you have the map that's made, Either you, uh, and it's not a either or, eh? it's and, right. but right. if we have to put it in an either or, this this way of linguistics, this only, so Homo sapiens only arrived about estimate 300,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Modern language is probably even younger than that. This other way of seeing or of cognition of the interior is billions of years old. Mm. So which tool would you trust more? Mm -hmm. And we put what you just mentioned, we put a lot of trust on this other one. I think therefore I am mm -hmm. uh, and our, <laughs> our, our construction of all these, these large analytical uh, or analytic constructs and all these things. Well, actually this way of um, single words or images or myth, this is a way older way of being and of being in the world. And this is also humans didn't, we aren't unique in the sense that we, we didn't, I believe so, I'm a biologist, we didn't arrive at the scene from nowhere. We are also in a tradition and we evolved with this massive um, uh, heritage of the natural world. So we carry we carry actual bulls in us. We mm -hmm. we carry uh, we carry memories of being uh, something other than an ape in us, even so in our physical body, let's say. And if we go into more holistic, sort of collective consciousness kind of models, then I truly believe that we are connected to the sort of interior of Gaia, of the sort of the world soul. So, right. and that one doesn't speak in like a nice written letter. That one speaks in images and in, in deep feelings and, uh, and, and yeah, gut feel. And, well, as with psychedelic experiences or 
deep, long meditation, you can or dreaming even, you can get all these like these super evocative and real, more real than real experiences, which we hardly ever get if we're in, if we use the analogy, if we're in the village, if we're in the conscious mind, if we're not out there in the wilds, if we're not rewilding. I love it. You know, language is something we use to tie up time, right? Like we use language to talk about right here, we're this thing, but imagery, you know, uh, I wrote down a quote that says a basic problem in understanding human thought has to do with the fact that we inevitably rely on some aspect of language to determine the nature of private experience. And so like, I can't explain to you exactly what I'm thinking. I can't explain to you what happened when I was on this trip. I can't explain to you what it was like when I fell in love. I can try and I may get close if I can harness the canon that is the English language or if I'm Christopher Hitchens or if I'm one of these people that have this ability to just utilize the the flowers of rhetoric. Like, I can get close, but it can't be beheld. And, and, yeah. and that is the difference. When I look at a Nautilus shell, I can see the cycles of life. When I look at a glacier and the water that has flown down the side of that mountain for generations, I can understand what life is about. And I think it's, you know, it's this Eastern tradition of the answers to life are everywhere around you if you can just take a moment to look at them. And I think yeah. I think more of us are moving back into that tradition. Maybe that's because we've found the the narrative failing, or maybe that's because some of us look at these old myths. And when I think of old myths, Simon or or different types of stories i and now this is interpretation but i look at this tower of babel and you see this giant tower being made and then it just destructing it's almost like this is the idea of language like yeah you can build a lot but it's going to fail at the end because it, it won't reach the heights of what is possible you can build it high but at some point in time the bottom starts being unable to understand what these people up here are saying. And that's the same thing that's happening in our world right now. You have all yeah. these people that are, that are, you know, the, the elites or the, the, the bottle builders or the map makers. And they're saying like, look, you just got to go out there and you make a right over there. But the, you know, like you said earlier, the, the map is not the territory. And so many of us are disconnected and we're starting to create our own ways is, is this okay. So we've explained kind of what can happen and what's going to happen. Do you mm-hmm. think this is an exciting time to go out and rewild yourself? And, and, and what does it mean? Is it an exciting time? Is it a scary time? Or how are you feeling about rewilding yourself and the world around you? Nice. Nice. It's a, it's a scary, exciting time. <laughs> I love it. I think that's uh, that's uh, that's what I would call it. It's the same if we use the psychedelics uh, analogy. I, often, if someone asks me to describe, or if I if I if I want to describe something, I say it was intense, mm-hmm. and because intense just describes it's it's both right. it's both scary and it's also beautiful. But it's yeah, it's yeah. intense. It's just it's. Uh, it makes you feel very much alive, and I think that is if you're on my on my best days. If I'm tuned in, if I'm uh, if I'm feeling good, if my uh, ecosystem is doing well, uh, yeah, I feel alive. So it's very intense. It's an intense time, and also incredibly motivating time because there's never there's never been in recent history more cracks showing in the foundation of yeah. this this old building this old map 
And I think a lot of us, let me talk for myself, but uh, a lot of us are quite sick of the old building and moving into the old building and having to put on the same suit and tie, mm. all metaphoric. Uh, but um, that makes it very exciting. And also this rewilding, for me, it is, it is, um, rewilding is done via uh, the connection to, uh, I would say, the divine. And what the divine means for you might be something else that it means for me. But I think when we start using that type of language, I think most of us that have some sort of connection to things larger than just themselves know more or less what we're talking about. And there's a big sense of comfort in that mm -hmm. because then you're not stuck here with right. only your map of trying to make sense of things or trying to make meaning of things. There's also a relief because once you can let this, again, I'm speaking for myself, but I'm using the you as a sort of yeah. general term. And uh, once you get that relationship going in, in the sense that you can start listening better and listening to these symbols, yeah. and to yeah. dreams and um, these deeper experiences and also incorporate them into daily life, you start expending way less energy because if i if i'm only operating from this is how i felt if i was only operating from the structures that i have in my head on how i have to operate things now now i must do this and then i must do that if i'm more in contact with this it's flowing it's more like okay i'm just uh, i'm just dancing along i i use the map to make a planning for the day so i arrive on the scene where i have to be have to, the sort of things I have to do. But apart from that, I'm not planning anything. It's just, uh, yeah, we'll see what pops up. And if you're, uh, let's say, um, playing around with this, then you have a lot more fun. Uh, you have a lot, uh, you have a wilder ecosystem to play around with. And they also teach you a lot of things that you would normally not, mm. normally not think about or uh, that you would not learn. If you were just stuck with the, uh, let's say the uh, normal curriculum. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's almost like the tools are all around you and have been, but your whole life you've been conditioned not to see them. You've been conditioned to not build with them. And yeah, it's, it's scary though, right? Like it's difficult. And, and maybe this is why they call it a process. And maybe this is why psychedelics help in that process is that it's difficult to veer off the path. It's difficult yeah. to, to go and, and do this thing that you believe in or that maybe you have a, a, an image of or something that you think you've been shown or something is speaking to you. It's difficult to follow that voice, that sign or that symbol because you've, you are afraid. You know, And fear seems to be this thing that keeps people in this world of scarcity. Fear yeah. seems to be a tool of the analytical side of the mind. It's this, yeah. it's this giant thing that pushes you in a direction to, to not be true to yourself, I think. And, you know, you've, I, I wanted to kind of segue as we're talking about um, the self and we're talking about the journey and we're talking about rewilding. You had given a really beautiful analogy about the forest 
and the village in one of your posts about the, the, the folk tales and myths and secrets and dangers and stuff like that. Can you maybe flesh that out a little bit? Do you remember that in your post about like yeah. what the forest is and what the village is? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this is highly inspired. My thinking is highly inspired by the mythologist, uh, Dr. Martin Shaw. So I can yeah. really uh, recommend checking up on him. He's also a very eloquent speaker. Well, he's a mythologist. He tells stories. So of course he is, but a great, <laughs> great figure. Um, and I, I really got into uh, his work. And also, I've been reading fiction since I was like, since I was yeah. able to read. So I'm continuously reading fiction. So I really enjoy stories. Uh, so what I put down in my post um, is the is the um, is the explanation or or the, the symbolism in a lot of old folk tales. In a lot of old folk tales, the forest is the unconscious. Is the is also the underworld, for instance. And the village or the castle uh, is the is the conscious mind, and so the, it's really a, a split between man-made, the man-made world, and the wild world, so to say. So the conscious and the unconscious. And in these stories, you often have heroes, uh, or if there's a typical hero's journey, they have a call of the wild, so they have to go prepare themselves and go into the forest and. Uh, well, go through a typical hero's journey, fight monsters, find treasure, go to trials, survive, um, find love sometimes. And then they return to the village, but they've grown or they've, they've, they've learned things. And that's very much the image of traveling through to the unconscious, opening up. Uh, and the unconscious is also dangerous. If you heard about, uh, for instance, uh, what I what I really like is the stories on uh, uh, Nietzsche and Carl Jung. I haven't read yes. that much about them or from them. My two read list is <laughs> too big, but I lo I love the story that um, I think Jung. I, I heard this somewhere that Jung was uh, very much uh, impressed by Nietzsche. He called him the first psychoanalytic um, or psycho. Uh, I don't know what the word is, but if, um, and then he said that Jung got uh, or Nietzsche got um, as his powers grew, as his madness grew, he went deeper and deeper into the <laughs> unconscious. And at a certain point, uh, he could not resurface anymore. Um, he could not resurface sane to the conscious mind, and so he got blown away by it in the or he got lost in the. Uh, unconscious uh, labyrinth mm. and Jung also he Jung said I think that what saved him was that he had a family and that he was very much anchored to the conscious mind or to the village so he always had a tether that would call him back to uh, he wouldn't range too long in the forest yeah. he would always go back even though I think Jung's Red Book was a collection of his memoirs written when he was uh, when he was in a psychosis, I believe, or for a long period of time, right. he was mad. And so there are dangers in the forest, and it's not for everyone. But if we pave over the forest with our uh, with our village, uh, well, we depend we depend actually on the forest, I guess, to uh, 
most likely it's you have all these numbers like okay the conscious mind is four percent and the unconscious is like ninety six percent or whatever. I do have this image of like a tiny village in a massive massive forest. We don't even know how big it is, and we are in danger when we lose that sense that when we start thinking no the village is the only thing when we build high enough walls that we block out the forest then we start treating the forest as externalities for instance then we get into issues like climate change and biodiversity collapse and all these kind of things because we we get so stuck in our in our village that we build and it's also with uh i had to think about this when we were talking about it the thing with these these old maps and these stories um they language works if it's referring to um i don't know if i'm saying that correctly uh if it it mostly refers to itself in the sense Mm. so you need axioms there there need to be at some point there needs to be put down a boundary let's say or a uh, an axiom saying like this we state as a truth and from this we can build uh our stories and if those truth starts shaking if those are the foundations of the tower right. of babel the tower of babel is built on a certain set of assumptions sure which might be to a certain extent true but everything changes in the world so at a certain point these assumptions uh, are also sinking in the sort of the forest is reclaiming them or whatever so when something gets too big it's time for a collapse and recomposition yeah, yeah so just some just some ramblings it's so true. It's so true. I, you know, everyone is talking, not everyone, but for a while we went through this phase where people are trying to redefine gender and they're just redefining everything. And, you know, it's, it's such a, in some ways it's, it's like the, it's like the greatest thing in the world. And in some ways it's the most disastrous. Cause like, if we can just redefine words, like why don't we redefine what overtime is? Why don't we redefine what a lawyer is? Why don't we redefine what money is? Like, and, and on some level, the smallest win for redefining words opens the door for redefining everything. Mm. And, you know, you can't you, – you get them all together. You can't just have one. If we're going to redefine what this is, then we get to redefine everything. And yeah. I think that, you know, whether some people get that or some people don't get it or whether that's just a cycle of humanity. You know, my, grand, mm. my grandpa used to say, if you want a new idea, read a really old book. Yeah. And in some yeah, ways, yeah. right, like, like yeah. we're just – Maybe maybe what's happening, Simon, is that we have to forget or we have to give up things so that they can be rediscovered and reimagined later. Yeah. That's maybe that's the process of building, yeah. and and, yeah. and we're seeing that now. Is that is that yeah. something that you think is possible? Yeah, I like uh, I like it a lot. I immediately get the, again the image of if you have a uh, I like natural metaphors. If you have a large tree, yeah. um, uh, if if something in an ecosystem dies. It's not stuck there. It gets decomposed, right? Yeah. Yes. So if if a tree is a is an ideology, for instance, so it's a it's a, a large structure uh, made up of different signs, symbols, words, meanings, and this this forms the edifice, this massive tree. If it falls, so it's painful, it crashes. It doesn't mean that the individual words in that tree or in the in that that composition are bad. No, right. you just need decomposition. And right. after it's decomposed, all the resources that were in that thing are 
become available again to the whole surrounding ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So it's actual this cycle of um, birth, growth, uh, decline, death is necessary for everything. And I think language, we talk about language as it is a living thing. We can talk right. about death. We use the literal words like dead language. Yeah. And and if you also talk about, uh, I had to think about this when you mentioned it, that we start define, redefining words. I think language in uh, we we have a relationship with language. Ooh, so language well is a living language is a living organism that is living in us. I love it. I love and it. we can try to steer that a bit, but as you uh, as you might see or as you alluded to, there's a quite a bit of discussion, of course, in the in the in the current culture and internet and. Of course, internet and these information technologies are also a host to language and allow it to evolve or to to uh, clash, let's say, with all the algorithms and all this kind of stuff. Um, I still have the feeling that language is doing its own thing, mm. uh, and we, you can be a, if you're rewilding, right? Uh, that's why I like poetry. I was never into poetry, and I'm. <laughs> Don't ask me to write a poem, but I'm I'm <laughs> I'm growing into it as I'm liking it more and more, mm -hmm. and as I'm letting go of my sort of analytical uh, kind of thinking or that mind. If I if I open up a bit, new words, uh, new meanings, all these things are, we receive. We don't. We are not the yes. author, and so these are sort of they are just looking for a host for which they can sprout. And if the forest is dominated by massive old trees, then there's hardly any light. So these large, these tiny new things cannot sprout. So in one sense, add some, uh, and, and indeed psychedelics, where do they come from usually? Yeah, fungus. And what is a fungus doing in a woods? Yeah, it's decomposing. So maybe the act of, of, of taking conscious psychedelics, microdosing is adding decomposition to the brain. To allow these large trees to be decomposed, be reintegrated in the system, and give a lot of space for all these small young trees to grow, or these smaller organisms. I I love that. You know, I, on some level, I'm romanticizing the idea of language as a virus that is looking for people like you or me or someone out there to infect to give them the ability to grow like the tallest tree in the forest. And if you just think about language as a virus, ima imagine this organism, this living organism that's desperately looking for a host that wants to, you know, grow inside of you. It's almost like an alien or a virus is a good yeah. way to look at it. Yeah. But, yeah. Like, at, let me try to tie this to myth. So all of us, a lot of us grew up hearing different myths, regardless of what culture we're in. So imagine you as an individual, you're going through your day and you come upon this mythology or you revisit a story when you're telling your kid, but you, you're reinvigorated. You've caught in the virus of language that is mythology and it begins to rise up in you. At that point in time, maybe it's that language that inspired you to stop being the villager that goes every day to the well and start becoming the hero that falls in love on the journey. And it's yes. the story you tell yourself, this language, this alien, this virus infects you. And as it begins to well up inside you, you begin to change. 
The language yeah. changes the way you think. The language changes the way you act. The language changes the way people see you. And if yes. you think about it from a poetic form, there's all these ionic potameter and this different ways of cadence to get yourself speaking. There's all these different ways of communicating that become infectious, that become something that changes you. And all you need to do is look back at the Homeric verses to see that it was storytelling in this certain way, this certain virus type of, of, of format. You know, it's almost the, like a genetic sequencing that can get inside you. I, I love it, man. I, and the more you started talking about poetry, the more I started to see these things too. Like, yes. Have you ever spoken to someone or better yet had a poem read to you when you got goosebumps or you see yeah, someone's face get flush? Like yeah. maybe that's the real form of communication. Maybe that's how yeah. I know I'm getting through to you, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%, man. Yeah. We've gotten so far from that. Yeah. But the space is opening, huh? Yeah. Oh, it's, it and, is. Yeah. And I am I was using the term, uh, so um, uh, Martin Shaw uses the term courting the wild twin. It's, it's a courtship. Yes. And what I like there, because a virus, that's why... I'm also interested in these kind of, uh, I'm a microbiologist, I work with bacteria and also a bit of viruses. Problem with viruses is that usually in a, in a, in a, in a cultural context, viruses have a very negative connotation. Mm. Even though there are also like uh, retroviruses that incorporate themselves into DNA and might change the, um, the levels of transcription of certain genes. So they might be uh, even beneficial to the, the right. organism itself. And mm -hmm. um, that's why I like the term that, that Marty Shaw uses, uh, the, the courtship. And I like the image, uh, imagery of animals or yeah. uh, wild spirits or these kind of things, because that's more of a relational uh, um, a relationship. A virus in is, uh, in my mind, puts up imagery of code and of, mm. of uh, sort of... Um, relentless uh, relentless code well i actually picture language and again here's is also as you were speaking i i also got these images or i will start i i, I could really feel what you mean there's also a danger here and that's again that's a danger of the subconscious it is what what language are you speaking uh, which which who are you courting are you courting something that is are you courting something that has your best intentions in mind or is it something that just wants to be incarnated, that is just right. looking for a mouth to speak through? And with these larger ideologies, you can quickly picture like, okay, this doesn't have the best uh, for the right. individual in mind. It is definitely a mass, uh, um, uh, a mass speaking animal, let's say. It's, it's something that seeks to colonize a lot of humans. While if you have this quiet relationship with, I don't know, picture it like a, like a single raven that you feed every morning and that at a certain point will start talking to you. Mm -hmm. uh, if that is your news or that is the myth or something, that's different. That's a very different, and especially if it's telling you very nice things in the sense of it help, it's helping you. And I was recently on a uh, plant ceremony and a man who had a, uh, so a plant medicine ceremony and a man who had a, a series of uh, like a very intensive uh, uh, ayahuasca retreats in Peru. He went there and was like there for two months or something. So he was still still very much in that space. He was talking to me about it uh, on how how uh, he was taught there, 
uh, about how to interact with this courtship and specifically in this in this setting of course because in this state you're wide open and you might interact with sort of more ex uh, uh, exotic uh, exotic species or whatever you're courting and then he would say that the training that they would get is whenever something appears to you and starts speaking to you in that space you first have to ask them are you medicine yes or no mm. and if they say no then you say no thank you even if they look very nice even if they have interesting <laughs> things to say uh so that that, that is a code that uh, sort of their their shamanic tradition uses i like that point because yeah. then then it's also it's not i like to reiterate it's not all fun and games yeah and uh what i dislike about the, the secret or sort of this new agey stuff sometimes is it's very much like you the, the stressing is on you can manifest blah blah you mm. well i feel like if you start uh, Okay, maybe this is a bit esoteric, but I feel like if you, um, who is the you? That's already a question. Who is the you that is wanting something? Mm. And if you start putting it out there and you're saying like, okay, I'm going to manifest. And usually it's like very, uh, what I've seen written, I don't want to completely flatten the whole idea, but what I've seen written was uh, material things like, okay, you can manifest a new house or whatever. Right then if something comes in and we'll just say like yeah yeah yeah, i can help you with getting that then you're like oh great he's gonna help yeah. me with getting that and it's like yeah maybe maybe <laughs> we should we should learn a bit and uh be a bit hesitant with these kind of things that's really well said you know and and i i think it speaks volumes of what happens to us a lot but it is in those heightened states of awareness, be it a, a, a ritual, a ceremony, a psychedelic experience. You know, I think that we have both of us have shared some of those experiences and, and, and we've been accustomed to that environment. And I can tell you in that heightened state of awareness, in that environment, I, I think you're allowed to try on ideas. You're, you're allowed to invite things to work through you. And some of those things you invite in should scare the living bejesus out of you. Like I've had ideas like that would be, I would make so much money if I did that. And then I'm like, oh. but you know what the consequences would be? Oh my God, get out of here. Thanks, but no thanks. You know, yeah. but it's that initial enticing idea of like, oh yeah, yeah. And I like the way you said, I can help you with that. Oh, did you want that? I can get you that, you know, but it's mm. like, how are you going to get me that? Yeah. And is that really what I want? Yeah. But I think that there's something to be said about trying those ideas on. And maybe this gets back to what you said about not everyone is meant to walk in the wild. Not everyone should be out in that area because some people can try on ideas and go, hmm, no, it's not for me. Where other people try on ideas and they're like, oh, I'm, this is going to give me that one thing that I want. And yeah. then you get into the idea of these things working through you or manifesting through you for their yeah. own nature instead of for yes. the good of nature, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I fully agree. And here I also, again, like the analogies, um, analogy of the human GI tract, because we have bacteria in there and they can have different types of relationships with us. So they can be commensal, they can be mm. uh, mutualistic. Yes. Yep. So they can be, they can really be uh, beneficial to us that can be benign. Uh, 
they can also be uh, parasitical. They can also be pathogenic. And if you picture it like that, like our brain is like like a GI tract, but for mm -hmm. thought, and we feed thought with well, I don't know, our energy or electric impulses or our glucose. So we we become a host for thought. Mm. Then, then it's very good to picture it sort of like, okay, let's say you're, uh, let's use the metaphor of language. Let's say you're out in the woods and you made your, you made, you were prepared. So you got your, your camping gear, you're set out to be there for, for a bit and you want to court new ideas. Yeah. You make your campfire and you go sit on a spot and then maybe different thoughts will come by and different entities who are entertaining these thoughts. And you can have you're still in the wild so that you mm -hmm. didn't bring them back to the village yet yeah so you yeah. have some time to you can converse with them and also uh, depending on how crafty you are or how trained you are <laughs> I, I i would say i'm uh, uh beginner level <laughs> i would say but depending on how how, uh, how good your discernment is and sort of your mental focus you can have a conversation yeah and then then entertain the thought but the integration part that's uh, then you can really think about okay what do uh, what did i invite in and i think what this man also stressed how they teach it in the uh, in that tradition where he went is it, it's it can only take hold if you invite it in and that's also like a classical folktale story right Right. So a vampire can only come in yeah. if you allow it and if you invited it. So it's also with these kind of uh, ideas. So it's, it's it's do you do you invite this foreign species in, and are you going to start feeding it as well? And so, yeah, I like this. This I have a sense here that the that older um, older civilizations or older traditions had a had a much more potent psychotechnology to deal with these kind of things mm -hmm. uh, with knowing that language is alive and we having just our having had our bender on uh, uh, scientific rationalism or materialism we kind of have to now sort of re reconnect to this this different way of seeing it uh, because I think we're running in a society or we're living in a society where these kind of organisms are running rampant and they're and a lot of them are very pathogenic. So they're really not working on the benefit, the benefit of the individual or of humankind or of the species wide or planetary wide flourishing. Uh, they're running their own show. Yeah. Um, and it sounds maybe it, it comes into the space of uh, conspiracy thinking and stuff, but I think you kind of get what I'm what I'm saying. It's like it's a different different. Um, yeah, I have the sense that in the in the in the relatively short future, we'll get more and more people sort of sort of getting a, f a feel for these kind of ways of seeing things. I've seen the word egregore yeah. popping up a bit more, which is like a it's like a manifestation of people uh, like collective collective imagery, uh, a collective um, construction of gods or of spiritual entities, and it's a, like a very occult word. But I've seen it used more and more in sort of 
other types of discourse. And if we use this analogy of the ecosystem of the mind, language as a species, it makes a lot of sense. It's like a collective of people feeding the same thought, the same organism. And then at a certain point, it gets a life of its own, and then it's capable of colonizing other people. And then it can work through them. So we, we should be, I think, very uh, careful in what is the stuff that we're feeding. What What is the name? What is that word again? Agrofor? Uh, agrigore. Agrigore. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, the way you describe that, how language as a living thing and technology, you know, it, it seems to me like maybe language as as we know it today began to fail when we started stripping spirituality out of it. Because, you know, when you think about spirituality, like it's an attempt to describe the ineffable and it's an yeah. attempt to describe kind of what we're now like we're putting the spirit back into language and when you strip yeah. the spirit from language it allows language is then allowed to strip humanity of any meaning in a weird sort of way because it's nice. just yeah it's 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 just scientific rationalism it's just yeah. you know this this peeling back of it's only material there's nothing else well then there's but, no meaning right yeah and wow uh, I, I like your point here um so we strip it from we strip yes. it from me the meaning is still there but yes. it's a different meaning we're not yes. aware of it yes that's much yeah. that's well put that's right yeah and and using the analogy of, of like courting entities or whatever what is a better host for these type of uh, for a type of entity that is like yeah i can get you that what is a better type of host than a person who thinks he's in complete control of his thoughts <laughs> so true and that's that's what what our worldview of course uh provides us the myth of i am my thoughts or i think therefore i am and, um if, if, if we if we lose yeah if we lose the contact with this well, as you say, the spiritual, the the metaphysical, it's still there. We just yeah. stop paying attention to it. And then we, we've invited all these things into the village and we're completely not aware of them. Wow. That, that makes my mind race about certain things like vessels and filling ourselves up and the elephant in the room and the vampire you got to invite in. Like it, it just brings it, – it helps to rediscover or uncover – all these ideas that have been around us. And, you know, I, I almost need a few minutes just to think about the whole idea of that. Cause it's, it's beautiful. And I think there's a lot, a lot in there to think about, but yeah, I, I really think we're onto something. And I, I think it's these things that we're talking about, about inviting the spirit back into you, whether it's a parasite or it's a symbiotic relationship, you know, which one do you want to have? And if, if you're not aware, then, a parasite is a sort of symbiosis. It's not a really good symbiosis, right? It's mm. not like you guys are both getting something. It's like yeah. one thing is taking. And that's kind of what's happening in society, whether it's the model of government we have, whether it's the economic system we have, whether it's the relationship in our lives. You know, there's a lot of parasitic things happening when it could yeah. be a give and take. It could be more of a symbiosis where everybody's yes. getting things back, right? 
That's why I also, and what I would like to add, I, I fully agree on that, George. What I would like to add is, for instance, the work of Tristan Harris on um, uh, on um, social media algorithms and these kind of things. He's from the Center of Humane Technology, I believe it's called. If we look at how our information landscape is built, and specifically the internet, and I think the average person spends a lot of time on the internet, very unproductive time, myself included. I also wrestle with it. This, 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 this horrible thing. Um, <laughs> it is also designed in a very, very parasitical way. And even the word feed, mm. if you, we only use the word feed if we're talking about farm animals, right? So it's already... Uh, here it's very useful to 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 think about what are the words that we're using and yeah. how is this Agreed. thing designed and what 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 is speaking through us and what's speaking to us because I I I almost feel that with with the advent of um, so if you would say that the the Gutenberg printing press was mm -hmm. the spawning moment of uh, ideology then I think information uh, technology like silicon-based uh, computer uh, like, like service internet blah blah i think that's the next evolutionary step for ideology because now with artificial intelligence with algorithms and all this stuff we've created a second ecosystem where these thoughts can manifest themselves into a physical shape so they can carnate sort of sort of say uh, apart from, it used to be only in our neurology, in our, mm -hmm. our physical makeup. Now we've created all these exterior places where these these uh, entities can more or less settle and copy. Here, here come. What I like here is the idea of forbidden texts in myths and in fiction. Like, oh, if you read this book, then yeah. the spirit comes out or whatever. There might be some sense in that, huh? That what you physically store is a is a spore for a living organism for a thought. It's a physical, uh, like like some bacteria form spores and then they can survive for thousands of years. Well, if you create a book, if you create a server, if you create a hard drive and store things in there, it's a alternative place of uh, language storing. And if language is a blanket term for these different types of thought organisms. Yeah, look at WikiLeaks. Like that's a yeah. forbidden text, right? Like, ah, look at yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and we're living in a in a. I think we're also living in a situation of uh, um, massive indigestion of of uh, uh, of of uh, information obesity. So wow. I have to play. I I really I struggle with this a lot because I really enjoy reading. For instance, me too. But if I'm playing to, uh, if I'm, I'm I'm spending too much time on digital media, I just I don't find the time to read, and I find it more difficult to read. So and then it takes me like a half an hour to really settle down or longer. Mm -hmm. So every now and then I try to build in like these these uh, like a short retreat, and then they have no internet for seven days or something, just to see what happens to how, how does this all quiet down and stuff, just to notice like a, what effect is this having to me. And it's so difficult. I find it super difficult to, to because there's also a lot of joy coming from interacting on the internet, also yeah. having fun conversations, uh, reading interesting things. 
but I have to really start finding the time to also sit with things and digest them instead of gorging on more and more information. Yeah, I, I get it 100%. Like, I love books and I love reading and I love stories. And I recently had a podcast with a good friend of mine, Dr. David Solomon, who, who we, our podcast was My Library is My Lab. And he was speaking about mm. this new college that's happening in Vermont and how the library there was going to be purely digital. And he was telling me about like, oh, the, you know, look at, look at what's happening here. And, and on some level, like I get it. Like, you know, these books are a way of, com of communicating stories from the past and they hold so much information. But on some level, and this is kind of like the dark side of me, is like I understand why they would burn the Alexander or the library. I, I, I understand book burning. I understand yeah. burning down. Let's get rid of all this knowledge. It's garbage. Yeah. All someone else's yeah. stuff. You yeah. know, and it, it's hard for me to say that because I, I have such a fondness for books and I have such a fondness for stories. But on some level, you know, on some level, what is all of that stuff? It's just another story. And, and might it be better if we started, you know, are you really getting, you're not just because you burn all the books doesn't I mean you're getting rid of the information, especially if we can agree that information is un, is revealed to you, you know, yeah. might that be what is necessary or yeah. might that be what it, what it takes for a new start is to get rid of all these old fences. It's a weird thing to yeah. think about. Right. Cause I, I don't want to be a heretic or, or, yeah. you know, sacrilegious, but I, I get it. I, I also get it. And, there is also the question like uh, who who burned the the library of Alexandria? <laughs> yeah. Was it a competing yes. competing thought structure that was like okay all these all these thoughts that might colonize uh, suitable minds that I want to colonize? Yes, let's get rid of them. And that's ideological warfare. It's actually yes. conflict between these thought organisms that use. It's like like a. Um, a collection of ants is way more than a collection of ants. It's a super <laughs> organism, right? Yeah, yeah. And so a collection of humans is way more than just individual humans together. And so these, these larger intelligences, which are these ideologies, the, these are the ones competing, I think. Mm. And these are the ones that want to burn books because the physical, the physical transcription of it disappears. It doesn't mean that the idea is gone. Right. Most likely the idea is still somewhere in the, collective unconscious sure it never goes away ideas come from but it does determine um, the trajectory but here i like to think again with a sort of ecological mindset usually the biodiversity is a strength so usually having a very diverse ecosystem is a very robust ecosystem mm -hmm. and that's why i would say that book burnings in general uh, I under while I understand it, right. it's most likely not a very viable strategy. If if robustness is a thing that we want to move towards, and I very much want to move towards robustness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I it's it, I love the idea of looking at at us as a super organism. I I think it was Christopher Ryan's book. I forgot what it was called, but. He spoke about, he gave the, the example of a grasshopper. And a grasshopper is a grasshopper ah, until it becomes locust. a locust, right? At yeah. a certain point, it hits critical mass, and then its, its form actually changes. Yes. And the mindset changes. And if yeah. you just 
hold on to that idea, you can think about the, a crowd or a riot or a, a group of people or a nation or whatever yeah. conglomerate you want to. At some point in time, we change the same way the grasshopper changes. Yes. Our ideology shifts and we become this force of nature that is almost unstoppable, right? It's, it's fascinating. Ooh. And then, and then, and then we're right back at the answers. The answers are all around us. I'm sorry, go yeah. ahead. And, and we're, we're already operating on a super organismal level. Eh? We're in a global civilization that is yeah. operating as a sort of amoeba uh, that is always looking for growth. So, so our, the entire global ecosystem, is, uh, uh, economic system, is built on growth. And the whole macroeconomic system as a, as a entity, let's say, is just focused on looking for more oil, for instance, which is the lifeblood of the, of, the, of the system. For this, I would really recommend checking the work of Nate Hagens, a podcaster. And he, he talks, he has an excellent synthesis on how to picture our current position uh, or what humanity, uh, what this moment is. Super high quality, very, very good thinker. Um, and he goes on to this super organismal theory as well. Uh, and he has a very, uh, I think he focuses on uh, energy. So on the sort of base level of what is necessary for the civilization and where do we get energy from and these kind of things. But we're, we're talking a bit more on the ideas on the no sphere right. or the, the, that, that level. Um, with the locust is interesting, by the way, uh, because a grasshopper and the locust are genetically, they're identical. Huh? So it's the expression of the genes that changes, mm. sort of expression pattern that changes. Ooh, and, like that's, yes. and that's epigenetics. Uh, so epigenetics is genetics on genetics. And that's determining um, which gene switches on or off or uh, more or less. And there are a lot of different uh, ways of epigenetics changing. But the interesting part there is um, that these, these social conditions of the locust, they physic, so they change the epigenetics and the epigenetics changes the morphology of the, of the grasshopper into the locust and also the behavior. Mm -hmm. And there's, um, I've been interested in this. I didn't work on it, but I, I uh, during my studies, I was reading up on uh, these kind of stuff is, um, how is memory encoded or how are thoughts encoded? And it's most likely linked to epigenetics. Um, so that also for human thoughts, uh, and they did this with also tested with lab animals to see how thought gets encoded into the into the genome. Because for a, a very simple example is um, uh, so take mammals, so even humans, or, or let's take a horse. Horses is easier. Um, at the moment of um, 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 Fertilization. Uh, there's no neural. Uh, there's no uh, neurons yet. So you only have an egg cell and a sperm cell. They go together, and that is the the total genome. So you just have one cell. There's no neural nerve cells there. Then, as the as the uh, baby gestates, it grows out. But the moment it uh, it is born, it's already a, it's a, a horse. So within like 10 minutes, it can walk around, right. it can eat, it can breathe. It has all these reflexes and this memory of what is being a horse. So the body moves already in a 
simple way or a simple way in a, a in a natural way and that memory was not stored in neur neurons because there weren't any neurons in the moment of conception so where does it where is that coming from and where's the physical storing of that kind of thing and so with humans it's interesting because uh, of course babies are uh, if you look at it on a biological uh, or a sort of sort of natural framework human babies are born way too early if you mm -hmm. compare it to uh, different types of it, like a horse so within 10 minutes it can run around and feed itself um, and it most likely has to do with our brain size and these kind of things but also our capacity for adaptive learning throughout life is way bigger than for a lot of animals so there i don't know there's this interesting playing around with with these kind of uh, I, i'm just trying to stay a little bit up to date on the sort of scientific yeah what is known about these things and on the other hand what we were just talking about the more esoteric like thought organisms and these things yeah yeah and i think that that is i think that that is a theme that runs through all of human history like we do have the ability for adaptive learning and to change models and to recreate something we never have but we do seem to fall back on these models and these models whether it's the locust or you know if we fall back on a if we were to fall back onto a story of human history and and use epigenetics as somewhat of a a model and we look at the locusts or we look at the bees you know we could see the same way that locusts get to a field and eat it to death, you know, and then they begin to turn on each other. That's kind of like populism right now. And like what mm -hmm. happens, like, you know, you, you can make the case that, hey, this leader led us into this field and now there's nothing left to eat. So then they just all turn on the queen and eat the queen. And the history is rife with the queen yes. being beheaded or the leaders being beheaded or, yeah. you know, part yeah. of the, the hive being segmented and then going their own ways. And if we look at yeah. that as a model, like that's totally plausible. And then there's the other side of it. We're like, okay, well, we're at this weird moment where we could do something different, but will we do something different? You know, yes. that it's interesting yeah. to think about. Yeah. And then I think that again, rewilding yes. is a means of, is a means of finding, um, changing the epigenetics. I'm, uh, I'll, I'll say it like that. Of course, it's not exactly that, but it's changing our, uh, it's changing the worldviews that inhabit us and that are running us towards ruin, let's say, and inviting different ways of seeing things. And that's actively changing your, your interior. And what I like about this, this way of trying to change things is I think in the long term, this, this is a way of getting out of our predicament. Because if we try to do it with uh, other ideologies, other left hemispherical solutions, then, then I think we're, we're continuously running the, or we're running the massive risk of just, just making the same mistakes. Because then we're again colonizing ourselves with these massive organisms that don't really have our best interest in mind. Then we're we're again run like a, like an ant colony, for instance, where maybe the colony itself is surviving, but all the ants are miserable. I'm not saying that the ants are miserable. Most likely, ants are fine as they are, but as humans, 
so and if if we then picture this idea of rewilding but also doing this in in co-creation with other people is sharing again like uh do rewilding together in the sense like okay start experiencing um do cold water uh cold river sittings with people on sunday uh spend the day in the outdoors uh, in, in in quiet or in nature share what you saw maybe make some nice drawings or write a poem or share these share whatever you're courting and court it in a natural setting and then let nature sort of guide us back towards a sort of a life affirming way because if we try to do it the other way with this this um this ideological way i think then then it's not us speaking it's it's an ideology speaking yeah you know that it makes me think so if we take the idea that ideologies are superorganisms and we've had communism, we've had capitalism, maybe we we maybe we've been the locust for the last 250 years. Maybe we've been yeah. gorging ourselves and now yeah. we're we, we're re, we're retaking the form of the grasshopper like yeah, I don't really want to go out and conquer anymore. Like I'm I'm fat and I I, I just I want to go bury a hole, you know what I mean? And yeah. and it, it seems like that the, the superorganism is dying it's running out of steam and yeah. you know, the leaders are like come on let's keep going and we're like mm, nah we're gonna yeah. fly over here but like maybe we are maybe and maybe that's rewilding maybe we are yeah. losing the drive of the super organism so that we can retrace the retrace like the ebb and flow right like super organism conquers and then it flows back and maybe yeah. we're becoming the grasshoppers again and starting to rewild ourselves and realizing okay well we need to take a break now or and like you said maybe it's nature doing the work oh i i 100 percent right think that nature is doing the work yeah um, <laughs> it's crazy to think uh, we would right <laughs> um i like what you put there and uh, there's there's an analogy that uh, i really like to use uh, that also fits and it's also insect it's uh, the analogy of the caterpillar turning into a butterfly and uh, the caterpillar's yeah. life is uh, if you look at it, it's mostly feeding, feeding and defending itself from predators, but gorging itself yeah. to acquire nutrients, mass. And at a certain moment in time, if, if a caterpillar would continuously do that, it would just eat itself to death and kill its environment. So there's a cue at some point where the caterpillar most likely from inside hears, this is enough. And gets triggered to crawl up a plant under a leaf and then spin itself into a cocoon. Imagine a creature that is focused on gorging itself, just only eating and uh, competing and trying to uh, uh, keeping away from predators. So it's fear-based, most likely. I don't know what the interior of a caterpillar is, but <laughs> let's be a bit poetic yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. And so it, its whole life is that. And then at a certain point, it's, it feels like, oh, this is enough. And it spins itself into a cocoon in mm -hmm. which it can hardly move. Then it, it actively starts to dissolve itself. So a caterpillar first goes from the caterpillar shape. It has to die more or less, trusting that at a certain point, the program or the plan of becoming a butterfly, so the epigenetic map, Again, the caterpillar and the butterfly are exactly the same genetic blueprint. That it, it first has to die 
it's metabolically active, but it's at a certain point, uh, there might be a moment where it's actually a soup. And then it will restart reconstituting itself into a butterfly. And then it goes out. So maybe, yeah. let's see, if I'm in my most, let's say, active hope or in my, if I feel life, yeah. I think like maybe we're in this process and we are all being asked to spun our own cocoon and move into this process of start listening to whatever this cue is to become a butterfly. And it's something that the caterpillar has to first let go of all the old stuff because it cannot stay a, mm-hmm. a, a it cannot stay a caterpillar. It's already spun, it's already in its cocoon and it cannot go back. So the only way is forward. But how does it know how to become a butterfly? Yeah, it most likely doesn't know. It just receives it. It receives it by letting go of the old. And I, I have a very strong feeling and conviction that that's that's the way we should do things. Yeah, I love it. I I, I see the transition of form as something that is definitely happening, no matter how you look at it whether it's generational terms and you have this this wide swath of baby boomers who are essentially us just a, you know if you if you subscribe to if you if you can say to yourself you don't come into this world you come out of it then you can see the older generation on a on a generational scale and like there's such a large number of people that are going to be over the age of 60 and like they're dying. So why wouldn't the world be in turmoil? If a large part of the planet is dying, wouldn't we all feel that whether no matter how, how old you are or how young mm. you are, you see yeah. part of you dying. Like it's, it's painful. You feel yeah. it. It's hard, yeah. but you can also, especially people that maybe our age and maybe each generation goes through this, but we're like this weird bridge where we see this big swath of us dying but then you and I are looking over and seeing this new birth, this new form. And maybe that's why the community that we tend to find ourselves in, Simon, are so, some people may say, irrationally optimistic about what's coming. You know, it's yeah. like we see the new growth. We're, we are the ones creating the new stories, the new myth making, or reintroducing the myths to the next torchbearers yeah. in a weird sort yeah. of way. It's it's a beautiful thing. And I love the idea of the, the transformation and the, the caterpillar and the butterfly and the changing of form. And, you know, even that changes the way you experience time. A new form experiences time in a different way the old form would. If you could fly yeah. versus trying to crawl on a thousand little feet, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting to think about. I um, Simon, I cannot tell you how much I love this conversation. And it, I would keep talking to you. I got a hard out coming up here, but I, I think you and I could probably do three hours. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's really easy. Yeah, <laughs> but before no, it's, we, it's a lot of fun. It is. It's really fun, and I like. I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface, and our conversation is is really starting to unfold in its own new form. Mm. I um, before I let you go though, where can people find you? What do you have coming up, and what are you excited about? Uh, I think uh, for now, mostly people can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I. Kind of like last year, I joined LinkedIn and I'm using it a bit as a platform to post my musings. Yeah. And I like that it's a bit short format. And then every now and then I just put something out there of things that I find interesting or just similar kind of stuff as we were talking about. Um, I'm working on a website, um, but that's also a place for me to 
maybe also bundle a bit of the information that I want to put out there, but also ways of contacting me. But I think the best way is uh, via LinkedIn. And I guess what I'm, I'm working on a lot of different things. Uh, and it's mostly with other people in the sense of uh, conversation. I feel, again, I have this sense that things are working through yes. me and through yes. us. Yes. And so I don't want to, I don't want to build a fence around it. Right. I'm just, of course, at a certain point it will take shape. And then if I feel a clear go ahead, I will build a fence. Uh, oh, what I have coming up is my PhD defense, which will be uh, in uh, September this year. So I managed to finally finish. So that's what I'm happy with. Congratulations. That's super thanks. awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. So you just have to get up. Are you just waiting to publish it or like what? what, what is the next? The next. Step? Yeah, it's it's like a bit of a bureaucratic uh, uh, set uh -huh. of steps. So the, 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 yeah. the, the book is done uh, and it has to go to a committee and the committee will have to read it. And I have a public defense, which is also a bit of ceremonial. So there's four professors that read it. They will ask me some uh, some critical questions. I have to defend my thesis. Uh, and then I'm officially sort of write my doctorate. And then there's also the published book. But the, all the writing is done. So. Oh, that's so. I, I can't wait to read it myself. I hope that when the time is right, you'll let me read it. Because I maybe you can come back on when it publishes and stuff like that. And I sure. Sure, it will be. It's very jargony, yeah. <laughs> these these That's type right. of uh, it's it's uh, uh, molecular biology, so it, it's highly highly specialized. So it's only for the, I, I would say it's esoteric knowledge. But if you would if you take joy out of reading it, sure. sure. Okay, I would, I would, and I I think that I speak for a lot of people when I say that I hope that you begin publishing more. I'm sure time is a factor for you, but I really enjoy as do as you can see the elevated numbers of people that are constantly mm -hmm. moving to your post, like it's, you have a really great way of synthesizing a lot of material and making it digestible for people and also interweaving the different ideas of different authors. I, and I love the way in which you describe the, whatever this is happening, Simon, working through us, working through you. I, I really enjoy it. And I, and I know exactly what you mean. And I, I'm, thrilled to be a part of it i'm thrilled to be in this conversation with you i'm thrilled to be in this Thank community so of all of us like-minded people so with that um i will i will put your link in the show notes and i will look forward to talking to you on the other channels that we have together and this one and if anything ever comes up feel free to reach out and uh, we'll do this more often because this is this is a lot of fun ah uh, thank you so much george and the uh, feeling is likewise it's a very fruitful conversation and again dialogue is also a living thing yeah so by going back and forth there's different entities talking to each other and if it's fruitful and creative then we get yeah we go places so i think we went somewhere so very nice <laughs> i agree man it was fun so ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for spending time with us i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and um that's all we got for today ladies and gentlemen aloha all right do that. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. 
I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.